bit each time. When you hear the gong, use that sound to help you come into the practice, collect yourself. And before jumping into the technique, do this process of relaxing, connecting to the space in the room connect to your seat, connect to your visual field, your auditory field, your tactile sensations. If you have any incense, smell of that. Before you even like get into full posture, you know, with the full upright, just relax, collect and shift from before. Open out your awareness to the space, whatever space you're in. Feel the full space of that space, the full extent of that space in front of you. And then around you, above, to the right and left, behind you. Explore the space behind you. Feel it with your back. Feel your back, back of your head down your back, feel the space behind, and then below you, basement, the next apartment, the ground, whatever it is. And then straighten up, establish the posture. Initially pushing way up, very stiff, and then relax it a little bit so it's not stiff, but it's still quite upright. Again, relax and find the breath. Initially, feel the full breath in and out. And then gradually emphasize the out breath. Riding the breath out, like going down a slide. When you hit the bottom, 
there's a gap where you walk back around to the slide stairs or ladder to climb back up. And during that gap, just check out the space again. Check out your posture and the 360 degree sphere of awareness you've opened up into. And then the next out breath. Emphasizing the sense of letting go, releasing whatever comes up. Merging mind with breath. <clears throat> and as breath goes out, it merges with space and we merge mind with space. Welcome thinking, thoughts, memories, plans, discursive gossip, the commentary, aches, pains, sounds, smells, tastes, sights, all labeled as thinking, softly letting them go, not suppressing, not searching for. And repeat. Okay, let's, uh, oh, welcome, Lindsay, welcome, Lindsay, joining us, uh, missed the first couple of classes, good to see you again, and is that Anya on the phone, I guess, cool, hey, so let's begin with our chanting, as usual. In order that all sentient beings may attend Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect, O Majushri, please accomplish this. So, let's see. Uh, tonight we're going to go through the approach to meditation and the prerequisites to meditation and briefly the different types of, uh, of uh, shamatha meditation, the prerequisites for shamatha and the different types of shamatha after the prerequisites for shamatha. So we're starting our shamatha section. 
Hope you guys are okay with going through Shalmata as well as Vipassana. Many people express greater interest in Vipassana, but I think it's really helpful to go through Shalmata in, in this way in order to approach Vipassana. I think I said that, sorry for repeating. Uh, so when you look at Trunk Rinpoche's writings on meditation, there's so much about the approach to meditation, the mindset of meditation. It's, it's actually, when in preparing for this course, which I began like 10 years ago or something, uh, when you look at the, the various presentations of meditation that he gives, there's so much material on the general notion of what meditation is and uh, sort of changing the, the uh, sort of common mistaken attitude towards meditation that uh, is so prevalent in the West. And he, he spends enormous amount of time describing this. And uh, in the East, in the traditional presentations of meditation, they often have a phrase called, uh, uh, or an idea that one has to cultivate the view before one meditates because when one meditates one naturally then ends up cultivating whatever view one had beforehand and in the traditional text that cultivation of the view that one takes into meditation is more about the nature of reality and it and ends up being a uh, sort of intellectual and very uh, complex and subtle analysis of the nature of reality, a la Madhyamaka. But uh, for Trunk Prambiche, it's it's much more simple and basic, and it's about um, it's it's talking about how we approach. Tend to there's a tendency to approach meditation as like any other thing that we want to accomplish or do in our lives. We have, there's this tendency to approach meditation as something to get. There's all this expectation of achieving something. And um, there's, in particular in the West, there's this idea that meditation is without thoughts. And um, if you have thoughts, you can't meditate. I have so many friends who are who are like, do you still meditate, Kalini? Oh, I could never meditate. I just I just think way too much. My mind is just way too active. <laughs> and uh, so there's this notion that uh, these are very incompatible things: thinking and, and meditation. And that in meditation, one's supposed to achieve this higher state of being. And uh, so. I chose this reading from uh, Rimshay's first book in the West, Meditation in Action. Uh, I think it was published in 1969, first in England, I think. And um, uh, it was actually from talks that he gave in 1967 at Samyat Ling. After being in the West only a few years, I think he came and said 63, so four years. And uh, it gives this really amazing presentation of the different 
types of meditation in his estimation and the different aspects of meditation in, in his approach. And uh, I think it's really uh, important in general and also for understanding Vipassana to understand his approach to meditation because he's actually also introducing Vipassana in many ways right from the start in terms of how to in terms of the emphasis on exploring what we are who we are what's going on what is our mind that meditation is a way of understanding our existence as opposed to escaping from something uh, as opposed to escaping from the chaos and suffering of our world and finding some blissful separate reality meditation and, and he, he uses this cool phrase he says it's extrovert meditation <laughs> which uh, very unusual phrase to, to use for meditation and uh, that it's also working meditation it's like a nine to five job you're working when you're meditating <laughs> that you really got to work at it um, so uh, I thought it's worthwhile to go through this and uh, so he first starts um, so I'm on page one of our source book I finally put pages on them uh, page numbers on it the second time I circulated it and it's this excerpt from Meditation in Action. It's the meditation chapter. And he talks about there being two types of meditation. One is like the type primarily theistically oriented that's trying to achieve some higher goal, uh, union with some higher being or, or uh, exchanging one's lower being for some higher existence, some higher basic, some higher um, type of um, being and that that type of meditation is an introverted interior uh, internally focused type of meditation practice that has this theistic mindset of better and worse that there's something better and I'm currently lesser and I want to achieve this betterness and he says uh, the other type of meditation is entirely opposite, though it might lead to the same result. He's sort of being conciliatory. There's no belief in a higher and lower. No, the idea of different levels or being in an underdeveloped state does not arise. So I'm on the bottom of page one here. One doesn't feel inferior, and what one is trying to achieve is not something higher than oneself. Therefore, the practice of meditation does not require inward concentration on the heart. There's no centralizing concept at all. And so I also, in preface to going through this type of material for meditation, I know many of you are meditation instructors, and I know many of you have an aspiration to be meditation instructors. And I know I have the aspiration for many of you to be meditation instructors. And I think it, it's helpful for meditation instructors to have this sort of, uh, have this framework of understanding how Buddhist meditation in particular, the style of Trungpa Rinpoche differs from other styles of meditation. Because as you present meditation, you'll get these responses from people. 
uh, which he addresses sort of one by one in terms of each part of this, you know, so far the theistic part and the effort to achieve something better and so forth. And on uh, top of page two, he says, this basic form of meditation is concerned with trying to see what is. So, you know, how do we distinguish this Buddhist meditation from other types of meditation in the world? Like, the, in particular, the type of meditation that people experience at the end of their yoga session, which is probably the most common meditation for people these days, these days because yoga is so popular is that people at the end of their their yoga session do a swat shavasana a corpse pose and they just like let go of everything and they've done this physical exercise so they're sort of exhausted physically and they can experience they put on the the music or they chanting om and and uh, there's this very blissful experience of going inward or uh, just uh, uh, having this experience of being separate from all the difficulty and chaos of the world, of one's life, of one's mind. And the difference is that uh, Buddhist meditation is about understanding what is. And that's the key for enlightenment. Enlightenment is achieved by understanding the nature of reality, by understanding it's not achieved by union with God, by union with uh, your inner higher self or anything like that. It's by understanding, by knowledge, by, by knowledge of what the true nature of reality is. And the corollary to that is that confusion and samsara is produced by not understanding the nature of reality. That is ultimately the cause of suffering. Originally, the Buddha said desire is the cause of suffering, but then you, you trace that back, and it turns out to be that the real root of suffering is not understanding the nature of existence. Um, he says, uh, this type of meditation is generally based on various different ways of opening oneself. Meaning later he explains this, letting go of preconceptions. This meditation is not the achievement of some long-term arduous practice through which we build ourselves up into a higher state. Nor is it, does it necessitate going into any kind of inner trance state. So the different types of shamatha that are referenced at the end of Kongchul Rinpoche's, Jongdun Kongchul's presentation are trance meditations. And I circulated a couple of things about them, um, about those trance meditations. And, and Buddhist meditation by and large is not focused on trance meditation. Earlier Buddhism, and to some extent, certain types of Theravada Buddhism still focus on trance meditation, the absorption states. And we find that even in um, sort of middle, what you might call middle period Mahayana traditions, such as Shanti Deva's Bodhicharavatara, he references the absorption states. Um, but later tradition after him uh, basically eschews the trance states and says they're not necessary in order to achieve enlightenment. 
and um, they and Trump and Boucher in various places is asked about the trans states and says uh, they basically become uh, a distraction because they're so blissful one gets distracted into them and they uh, one ends up wasting a, a large period of time dwelling in these very blissful absorption states and not cultivating the capability to understand what is the nature of reality so here's where he calls it working meditation extrovert meditation where skillful means and wisdom must be combined skillful means using the technique of meditation practice some of which are very similar to the theistic form but wisdom in terms of understanding what we're doing and understanding the common misconceptions that people come to practice with the expectation of achieving something and so forth. It's not a question of trying to retreat from the world. Skipping to the next paragraph, this kind of meditation practice, the concept of nowness plays a very important part. In fact, it's the essence of meditation. So just experiencing the present because the present is what is. And if we can understand the present, then we will see all three times and experience what he calls the fourth moment, which we'll come to towards the end of the course. Um, in the last paragraph, he says, so the concept of trying to become something higher doesn't arise and opinions don't have much importance. Opinions provide a way to escape a kind of slothfulness. And they obscure one's clarity of vision. The clarity of our consciousness is veiled by prefabricated concepts. And whatever we see, we try to fit into some pigeonhole or in some way make it fit in our preconceived ideas. So concepts and theories can become obstacles. So he's pointing out already the basic habit of conceptual mind is to label and fit every experience into preconceived pigeonholes instead of experiencing reality freshly, moment to moment, within nowness. And so, we, in, uh, by experiencing things through our preconceived filter, we experience our preconceived ideas instead of the reality of the world. Let's see. Working with expectation and the ego. So these are the basic differences between the two types of practice. They may be more suitable for some than others. One may be more than the, than, uh, the other. Um, but in any form, for any form of meditation, one must first overcome that great feeling of demand and ambition, which acts as a major obstacle. And I think all of us experience this in our practice. We're constantly, and, and there's like this, um, this setup about practice of like how's your practice going what are you experiencing what's going on and um and at the same time so that sort of builds up the expectation 
and reading about meditation, understanding the different stages, sort of builds up this expectation. And at the same time, we have to let go of expectation. And because if we're constantly checking our experience to try to figure out where we are on the map of the nine stages or whatever map we're using, we won't get anywhere. We'll just be filled, you know, we'll, we'll uh, just circle around in our conceptual mind. So somehow we have to experience exertion in meditation practice that isn't fixated on quantification or achievement, but an exertion that's based on, on a, a, um, a familiarity with nowness, an interest in just seeing what is. It's just the, the wantingness is uh, based on some centralized notion, which is blind. Um, there, there being that one blind eye, that one eye being situated in the chest. So we're like, um, when we have expectation, we're constantly looking out for that one thing, for me, for what am I experiencing, what's happening. And that ends up blocking our openness to what it is. He goes on for some time about ego and ego, the uh, the role that ego plays in meditation practice. Uh, basically, revealing that what we experience in meditation practice in the process of trying to understand what is, is we first encounter the ego. The, the fact of our focus our obsession with self and um, and that everything we do is, is focused on protecting and cultivating that sense of self and that's also wrapped up in the in the idea of expectation about the practice what am I experiencing where am I going what am I getting out of it why am I doing this practice and it's all revolving around the self. And it's, it's uh, just like the, the expectation where on the one hand, you have to have some uh, motivation in order to practice. You have to have some sense of ego in order to pursue meditation practice. Um, so it's a matter of wearing these things away through the practice by doing the practice that looks at what's going on with that expectation with that sense of self, that ego, that focus on ego. And that we can only do this through meditation practice, through a practice that brings those two opposing forces together in a non-intellectual way, that brings together this, this momentum towards um, experiencing reality, wanting to experience something through meditation practice, and then at the same time sitting there minute after minute, breath after breath, hour after hour, and seeing what our mind is doing. And uh, that, that brings us to the, uh, the topic of boredom, which he doesn't go into a lot here, but um, he, he mentions in the uh, prerequisites, the constant need for entertainment and our minds constantly occupying itself.
bottom of page four. So exposing this whole uh, framework of ego and expectation can only be done through meditation practice that's approached in a very practical and simple way. On the overlapping sense, he says that's um, that is what one tries to do through to achieve through vipassana or insight meditation practice. And interestingly, in the early presentations of meditation, he uses the Pali for uh, vipassana, showing influence from the Theravada tradition in England. Once we've established a basic pattern of discipline and have developed a regular way of dealing with the situation, whether it's breathing or walking or whatever, then at some stage the technique gradually dies out and reality gradually expands so that we do not have to use the technique at all. And in this case, one does not have to concentrate inwards, but one can expand outwards more and more. And the more one expands, the closer one gets to the realization of centerless existence. And so this is the overall uh, framework for the progression of meditation in, in the traditional versions and in Trumper and Pache's presentation, which we saw last week of going from like Shamato to Vipassana to Mahavipassana to Shunyata. And uh, that's, that's, that's one way of him presenting it in that, that scheme with these uh, terms, that, those stages. And then there's, a, uh, there's this way that, we, uh, that I just read through of uh, gradually letting go of the technique and expanding outward is much more experiential explanation. And in the tradition, the, the progression is from shamatha with a fixed object to shamatha with uh, a vague object or an object that's not dynamic, sorry, that's not static, but an object that's moving, and then to shamatha um, with an uh, internal object, and then to shamatha without object. And, and in our in our practice, um, so I'm sorry. So in the traditional version, there is that scheme of going through through different objects. But what actually um, ends up being presented in the technique that we do and in, in most presentations is that one goes through those stages of, um, of fixation on a, a sort of concrete object or um, a very definite, distinct object that creates a subject-object situation initially no matter what object one chooses and then gradually through the progression of the practice if one practices genuinely and experiences a, a lessening of fixation a lessening of um, obsession with the ego the protection of the ego and the focus on achievement and obtainment in the practice one gradually lets go of the details of the practice now this is tricky because if you do this too soon then you end up in mush you end up just practicing mud and you can end up wasting a lot of time thinking you're doing a very advanced practice by not having any object and uh, it's one of the potential pitfalls 
of understanding the, the technique in a broad way before doing it. However, uh, the idea is that uh, we're all generally quite uh, educated in this, this country, in this situation, and able to understand enough about the pitfalls that we can be our own guide. And we can be realistic with ourselves if we're, we're willing to be totally genuine, which also he stresses, just being really genuine about practice and honest with our experience. My, my ending up spending huge, you know, most of my time in this sort of mushy state of, am I, am I present or am I in nowness or not? And realizing that until we have stability in an object, we can't really let go of the technique. Uh, but there are, you know, the secret teaching is that there are these stages of letting go of the, of the uh, uh, clunkiness, so to speak, of the or the deliberateness of the technique. So initially, we're taught to follow the out breath and label thoughts as thinking, and come back to the posture to the space and to the breath constantly, constantly redirecting our mind out of confusion, out of distraction, back into mindfulness and the present. As one gains stability, one is, uh, one realizes that thinking, discursive thinking, doesn't actually have to drag one away, that there's no here or there. And so there's a natural loosening up of the technique of the labeling process in particular. Generally, this is supposed to be something that happens in your relationship with your meditation instructor and where your meditation instructor encourages you to not be so literal. And um, in, in accompanying this, there's also a, a stage in practice where we feel a little bit like things are getting uh, worse, like our meditation is deteriorating. It's not as clear. It's not as crisp. When we're going through this phase of uh, sort of naturally not applying the technique as deliberately as before, and so it's important that we have this balance and this this uh, honesty with ourselves of is it is my meditation actually deteriorating and i'm just spending my time planning my my to-do list or am i experiencing this ability to be present without always focused on the breath anyway that's a little sidebar on that topic but then he sums it up the basic pattern of this type of meditation is based on three fundamental factors, not centralizing inward. So we're not focusing on the chakras or the heart or whatever. We're not having any longer to become higher, greater, better, and becoming completely identified with the here and now. And these three run through the practice of meditation from beginning to end. 
let's see. And he it's interesting. He describes this process of starting with a, a structured practice and then loosening up in the first Q and A, where he. Uh, Somebody says, is it possible to become aware of the absolute through awareness of a relative moment in time? And he says, you have to begin with the relative. That's all you have to work with. And he compares it to, in the middle, he says, similarly, in order to express space, one might might have first have first to create a vase, and then one has to break it, and then one sees that the emptiness in the vase is the same as the space outside. That is the whole meaning of technique. At first, that nowness is, in a sense, not perfect. One might even say that the meditation isn't perfect. It's purely a self-created practice. One sits and tries to be still and concentrates on the breathing and so on. But then having started in that way, one gradually discovers something more than that. So the effort one has put into it, into the discovery of nowness, for example, would not be wasted, though at the same time, what might see that it was rather foolish, but it's the only way to start. He's talking about this idea how we need structure at the beginning. We need a framework. We need a technique. And uh, if you've ever read the book by Trump Rinpoche called The Myth of Freedom and the Way of Meditation, the whole uh, beginning, the whole presentation of meditation, the sitting meditation chapter, is all about this. It starts with a section called The Fool. <laughs> and it follows a section about uh, reality, um, illusion of reality or something, where there's this myth that there's going to be freedom, some state of freedom that's totally divorced from my day-to-day -day experience. And that we have to overcome that idea that we're going to achieve some mystical world and not have to deal with the nitty-gritty of our lives and then um, and then he says well um, uh, you may feel like you've been fooled because I told you you didn't need any sort of structure to experience reality but you actually do you need this facade of a technique in order to tame your mind and uh, but the more traditional way of describing the mind is the monkey mind. And Rimshe does use that that image as well, taming the monkey mind. Um, let's see. And uh, he, he speaks similarly in terms of ego in the next Q&A. Somebody says, Would, wouldn't one have to rid himself of ego before he started? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that would be good. And he says, uh, you can't start without ego. Ego isn't bad. Good and bad don't really exist. It's only a secondary. Ego is, in a sense, a false thing, but it isn't necessarily bad. You have to start with the ego and use ego. And from there, it gradually wears out like a pair of shoes. But you have to use it and wear it out th thoroughly so it's not preserved. Okay, so um, and then uh, on page, let's see, page eight, somebody asks him, what is the purpose of meditation? And here he gets right back to the whole expectation thing. He says, meditation is dealing with purpose itself. 
It's not that meditation is for something, but it's dealing with the aim. Generally, we have a purpose for whatever we do. Something's going to happen in the future. Therefore, what I'm doing now is important. Everything is related to that. But the whole idea of meditation is to develop an entirely different way of dealing with things where you have no purpose at all. <laughs> we have no purpose at all. Just sitting there with no purpose. I know that used to drive my parents crazy when I would meditate. And they would be like, why are you wasting time doing nothing? One learns a different way of dealing with life, with the situation. One no longer has to have a purpose. One is not on the way to somewhere. Or rather, one's on the way and also at the destination at the same time. And at the end, he gives an interesting little... Uh, epilogue or whatever on page 10 he says that perhaps I should mention one or two small points generally meditation instruction cannot be given in a class such as this uh, there has to be a personal relationship between a teacher and a student so I urge you all to have a meditation instructor if you're serious about the practice. Um, perhaps I should briefly mention the basic way of meditation, and then if you want to go further, I'm sure you could do so and receive instruction from a meditation teacher, I'm sure. Meditation is not concerned with trying to develop concentration. And he talks about the distinction between mindfulness and concentration. And how concentration ends up being like this uh, uh, cat and mouse game where one ends up solidifying the watcher. And this is an interesting comment because in other pr presentations he talks about the necessity of the watcher but that but gradually and ultimately the watcher dissolves. So this is something we'll come back to. On the next page 11 in the middle, where he talks about the posture, and then he says the, the breathing itself is not a matter of concentrating, but of trying to become one with the feeling of the breath. One with the feeling of the breath. I think we'll see that come up again. The next paragraph, it's important to avoid being really solemn and serious about the whole thing as if one's taking part in some special rituals. One should feel quite natural, spontaneous, and simply try to identify with the breath. There's no ideas or analyzing involved. Whenever thoughts arise, just observe them as thoughts, rather than being a subject, being caught in the thoughts. Skipping to the next paragraph, one should not Try to suppress thoughts in meditation, but once you just see, try to see the transitory nature, the translucent nature of thoughts. Little Mahamudra exercise here. See thoughts as impermanent. See their trans. The impermanence of thoughts is basic meditation, Buddhist meditation uh, 101. But seeing thoughts as translucent, as translucent meaning they can be present but not real, present but not compelling, present but not 
needing our attention. Okay, so now let's shift into the uh, the prerequisites. First, we have John Conchul's text on page 13. The prerequisites for shamatha are to rely on the, the to rely on the conditions for shamatha is to reject everything unfavorable. This is a little extreme, and Trungpa Rinpoche was not extreme as we've seen, but uh, the traditional people were much more. Exacting. To stay in a favorable place, to have few desires, to be content, to adopt pure ethics, and give up distraction and discursive thoughts. In other words, in other words, to be enlightened before you start to meditate. Since one wishes to accomplish shamatha, it's very important to rely on the causes or prerequisites. In this famous text called The Lamp for the Path to Enlightenment by Atisha. He says that the conditions for shamatha deteriorate. Even if one meditates with great effort for a thousand years, one will not accomplish samadhi. So it's important to like um, think about how we're approaching meditation, which Trung Prabhupada spends enormous time on and which we just went through. Uh, Henrietta. Yeah, uh, this brings up something I... Uh, maybe we'll address later, but the idea that um, if you're having strong emotions or if you're caught in a strong uh, emotional circumstance and finding it difficult to meditate because of those circumstances. So, I mean, I think this is somewhat relevant. Yeah, so the traditional one would be, well, first you need to give up all of those emotional experiences and if you're experiencing uh, attachment you should co contemplate the cemetery uh, right but I was thinking more in terms of Trogam uh, Trumpa's take on strong yeah, which emotions is, which is very different so what's his take on when you're having a what he would call a klesha <laughs> right exactly what's his or take? you're involved in a, a very real situation not just your mind going but you're involved in a very real situational difficulty that's going to influence so, yes so what is his approach you know we just we towards that conundrum does one you know give up meditation until one's in a chill space again how do you approach the whole situation Mary Beth knows she's smiling. You sit with it. You sit with it. <laughs> you give up the expectation that everything's got to be perfect. You know, the whole thing he talked about with expectation is if we expect that everything's going to be, you know, like John Wukongchul describes it before we sit, we're never going to start meditating. So. You know, again, we see this wonderful uh, contra, uh, whatever that big word is that I can't remember, the way of Trungpa uh, Rinpoche explaining the, the traditional approach to meditation is so much more uh, appropriate for our day and age. Um, but but uh, I think it sort of helps to see, to see the two of them together. Uh, let's 
see. It's also said in the chapter dealing with the prerequisites. Keep well the previously mentioned conditions and settle the mind in virtue by means of any correct object of observation. If a yogi thus accomplishes shamatha, he will also gain super sensible cognitions. Let go of that thought that you're going to be able to, you know, make money on the stock market by by knowing what's going to go up and down through meditation practice. But um, what are the prerequisites? Kamala Sheila says to stay in a favorable area, to have few desires, be content, forsake excessive activity, dump your ethics, give up distraction, do it or desire, have discursive thoughts. The ornament of Mahayana Sutras says pretty much the same thing. And then Kongchul lists the details. To stay in a favorable, favorable area means to have good facilities, i.e. to uh, easily obtain food and clothing. Uh, and you might the word easily there might be it might be that translated that section differently of like to a, to um, a, a experience ease with one's food and clothing or contentment a wholesome environment with no danger from robbers and thieves a healthy place free from disease oh well. <laughs> Pandemic, no meditation. Good friends of like view and conduct, hard to come by. And the prerequisites for happiness, freedom from commotion and disturbing noises. So this is very traditional stuff, not realistic for our day and age. Having few desires refers to food and clothing. Being content is being satisfied with bare essentials. Forsaking excessive activity refers to buying and selling stock. And adopting pure ethics means not transgressing one's vow of uh, personal liberation. It's the Pradimoksha or Bodhicitta, refuge in Bodhisattva vows. Giving up discursive thoughts refers to that mental activity which arising out of desire results in many shortcomings in this and future lives. So uh, there you go. We'll come back to the progressive classification. And then we have the actual texts in long form, uh, the, chap the section from Kamala Sheila where he talks about the prerequisites. Uh, uh, he pretty much just fleshes out the same thing. The most interesting part was, uh, let's see. Oh, let's see, I'm, I'm on page 15. It's helpful to note that in the traditional uh, approach to meditation, as well as in Fungpa Rinpoche's approach to meditation, like in the profound treasury, it comes after the cultivation of conduct, of decent conduct, sometimes called discipline in Sanskrit, shila. And so it's upon that basis that we most successfully cultivate meditation practice. Not being involved in many activities. Um, he also goes into the prerequisites for special insight, relying on holy people, seriously seeking extensive instructions on page 16 on the top, and proper contemplation. What is meant by seriously seeking extensive instruction? This is 
to listen seriously with respect to this uh, complicated terminology of term definitive and interpretable, interpretable <laughs> meaning of the 12 branches of the Buddha's teaching. So in other words, like this, to study the teachings, to have some understanding of the teachings. And um, yogis should at all times avoid fish, meat, and so forth, down below. Oh well. And at the very bottom, this is my favorite part, when meditating, yogis should first complete all the preparatory practices. One should go to the toilet. It's the only guy ever to mention going to the toilet. It's like priceless. Unbelievable. Set your attitude, I'm going to deliver all beings to enlightenment. And let's see. And then finally, the last paragraph on page 17. One should sit in the full lotus posture, probably not realistic for most of us, or the half lotus. Uh, the eyes should be, uh, should not be too widely open and, uh, nor too tightly closed. Let them focus on the tip of the nose. How many of us meditate focused on the tip of our nose? Can anybody do that? Can you do that? Focus on the tip of your nose? <laughs> Go cross-eyed. So the gaze is uh, one of the more interesting things that come up in different ways. We're taught, you know, uh, four to six feet down on the ground, slanted 45 degrees down, just place your eyes without focusing and uh, relax your gaze. Uh, but other, other traditions are uh, meditating with your gaze close in, looking, looking at the space like a foot in front of your face, just saying. The teeth and lips should rest in their natural state and uh, with the tongue touching the upper palate, lightly touching the upper palate, breathe very gently and softly without causing any noise, without laboring or even unevenness, inhale and exhale naturally, slowly and unnoticeably. Again, uh, very different from Trump Rinpoche, just like let your breath be whatever it is, don't, don't manipulate it just relate with with whatever the breath is. So how does he present these prerequisites? He used this list of the seven characteristics of a dharmic person, which he drew out to be nine. Of course, uh, according to Hinayana logic, being genuine is fundamental. Being honest with ourselves in our practice and not using the meditation to get away from ourselves. So I'm on page... Uh, 18. So he says uh, this entails the seven characteristics of a dormant person, passionlessness, contentment, fewer activities, good conduct, awareness of the teacher, propagating prajna, attitude of goodness. Very similar list that he's uh, come up with here. Seems like he might be using the same list. Um, Interesting the way he describes passionlessness. So the traditional one was to have you know few or no desires, and uh, for Chung Prim Shane, page nineteen, the first characteristic of a dharmic person is passionlessness. The the uh, definition of dharma is passionlessness. He says in some places. 
having established the basic environment, you pick up on all the little details of how you try to create your own local comfort zone. And he was endlessly making fun of us Westerners who like, you know, we have all the little niceties that one can possibly think of even if even more so. Whereas he comes from Tibet and like, you know, the, the conditions he grew up in are just so foreign to us. It's hard to imagine. Um, passionlessness is an interesting theme for Westerners. In the West, you have all kinds of ways to occupy yourself from chewing gum to taking trips to the Bahamas. You're always looking for ways to solve your boredom. So passionlessness means relating with boredom. Your boredom problem. Passionlessness means experiencing boredom properly and fully instead of trying to get away from, from boredom by doing this or that, but dealing with your boredom, dealing with boredom. In the West, like boredom is the worst thing, you know. Oh, I'm bored. You gotta do something to cure that. Love the way he describes it. If you um, have chewing gum in your pot pocket, suddenly you develop an itch on your hip. <gasps> Lo and behold, you find the chewing gum. You take it out and put it in your mouth. You're in such a hurry, you can't even open it. <laughs> you know he's he's come up with this by observing people, right? He didn't just make this stuff up. Uh, <laughs> I love the pads on the spectacles. And so at the end there, with passion, you always need some kind of sustaining power. Whereas with passionlessness, you're able to maintain yourself. You can relate with boredom and you don't immediately fill every gap. Contentment. You don't have to expand yourself. Instead, you're contained in your own existence. Interesting way of expressing something contained in your own existence. You appreciate what you have and you rejoice in it. Enough is enough. Like the French, every morning they have one egg for breakfast because an egg is enough. Enough is enough. <laughs> oh, let's see. When you're constantly changing from one thing to another, you can't celebrate your own life. So contentment is also related to passionlessness and uh, it's that sense of appreciating simplicity. And he talks about losing your toes in an accident, which if he wasn't paralyzed in the half of his body would might be like really odd thing to example to use, but still pretty odd. You've lost something and it's gone. You might even organize a party to celebrate the loss of your ego hanging up on your toes. It's a little bit of an extreme example, but I think you get the point. You have an appreciation of obstacles becoming simplicity. You know, you can imagine people coming to him with every little complaint under the sun and him just like getting a little bit tired of it. Contentment is unconditional. Fewer activities, not engaging in too many activities, reducing unnecessary ones, non-functional talking and entertainment mentality. Um, 
towards the bottom, he says, even in sitting practice, you can be involved in lots of activities. Engaging in fewer activities means you giving that up. You know, sometimes in meditation, we spend the time thinking about, you know, what we have to do and how and so forth. And it becomes a very effective way of doing that sometimes. Gradually, we have to get over that. Giving up your business deals, such things as consulting your astrology chart or your tarot cards, or throwing dice. You don't waste a lot of time retelling stories or developing frivolous jokes. Like enough is enough is enough. Anyway, um, good conduct. It's based on being willing to work with yourself on yourself. The idea of individual salvation, dedicating your activities to the benefit of all beings. It's based on mindfulness awareness. It's not self-consciousness, but it's conscientiousness without a focus on oneself. Simply looking at what you're doing, respecting yourself and the sacredness. And uh, he, he, he talks about the difference between this conscientiousness or awareness, as he's calling it here, and self-consciousness. Ordinarily, people mean uh, being cautious or careful. Here, awareness is simply a question of waking up. Um, you could be awake and aware at the same time on the spot. When you reflect at this, that sense of constant sunrise, when you're always awake and aware of what you're doing, that is good conduct. And uh, as he went on in his teaching in America, he spent more and more time talking about conduct and uh, talked, talked, used, started to use the word decorum. And it became this whole theme of Shambhala teachings of decorum, having a natural sense of uh, appropriate embodiment in our world. Dignity, right? Dignity as well, yes. That was, yeah, that's, that's good. That's, that's sort of the culmination. Word. Yeah. Fifth characteristic is awareness of the teacher. Um, you could, without, because you're without shyness, you could relate with the teacher as somebody who's already accomplished the path. So we're talking about Trumper and Pichet. And, you know, relating directly with that level of accomplishment. On the next page, studying and receiving teachings from an authentic teacher will affect your state of mind, including your subconscious gossip. So, so through studying over and over again and reading and becoming accustomed to one teacher's voice, one teacher's way of presenting the teachings, that voice begins to enter into your mind stream. And you're, you find that your subconscious gossip is invaded by that other commentator. It's a very interesting experience of uh, getting crowded in here, so to speak. And uh, he used an interesting example just after that. He says, if you study hard enough, even when you have subconscious gossip during your shamatha practice, the chances are that your subconscious gossip will be dharmic instead of reruns of past memories, like uh, such as hitting your grandmother on the head. 
I don't know what he's got against his grandmother, but um, should not. On the other hand, you don't like think you're great because you're thinking about dharmic thoughts all the time while meditating. You just have to regard them as thinking and come back to the breath. Cultivated intelligence as a prerequisite to shamatha. Sixth characteristic is propagating prajna or intellect. You should understand who you are, what you're made of. Find out what your mind is made of, out of what your mind's projections are made out of, what your relationship with your world is made out of. This is so much the the uh, uh, the framework of meditation as he presents it, and in particular, vipassana is all about it's beginning with. Shamatha, under, uh, experiencing and gradually understanding our habitual thinking patterns, our habitual emotional patterns, the repetitive nature of our uh, mind's activity, becoming familiar with that, noticing that we tend to think about the same things over and over again. We tend to react in the same ways over and over again. And noticing these ways of reacting as being what he calls the six realms of existence. Instead of those being focused on uh, some after-death experience, those being experiences in this life. And as the first step really towards developing Vipassana, Vipassana being understanding the nature of our mind. And so that begins with seeing the the uh, discursive, chaotic, neurotic nature of our mind. Uh, so this includes studying Abhidharma teachings on Buddhist psychology. And um, interesting phrase, as you study and practice, you take pride in how much you've learned and you begin to become more and more confident. And you take pride in the Dharma. There's a sense of uh, becoming confident about knowing your mind, and knowing the technique of meditation, and knowing the process of meditation, not as some sort of uh, uh, samsaric or, or uh, neurotic or egotistical pride, but more as a sense of um, confidence, pride in the sense of confidence in knowing how your mind operates and knowing what, it, what it's doing when it's operating in that way, and knowing how to apply the, the techniques of meditation to deal with the mind. And this extends into our post-meditation. And then at the end, he does say you're free to crack jokes and sing songs in the shower alone, only in the shower. But you're not taking time off from anything. Your life is infested with Dharma infested. And uh, there was a time when there was this commercial, this uh, Coca Cola commercial came out with the Dalai Lama. This is probably before most of your time, but it was, a, uh, they had a series of commercials where they, they had famous people saying, I'm taking a break. And they were drinking a Coca Cola with the real thing, you know. And, the, and then they had the Dalai Lama taking a break and Rinpoche had a field day about that he was like what are you taking a break from what do you need to take a break from <laughs> anyway snow breaks maybe in the shower 
The seventh and last is an attitude of goodness, which comes from all of these other things. It's an sense of appreciation of the, what he calls basic goodness, of the, the potential, the workability of our mind and our situations in life, and, and uh, the, uh, the workability of the technique and the practice. Uh, he likes the image of good spaghetti. He probably saw that documentary on the spaghetti wars. But uh, then finally, he adds a, another category, which is remembering to be dharmic. He's remembering to do numbers one through seven, or zero through seven. And uh, you're making friends with the dharma so that whether you're practicing or not, you still have a sense of the immediacy, directness, rightness, truthfulness, and realness of the Dharma. And he goes on and on further about this and summing it up. Um, uh, altogether, becoming a Dharmic person means that Dharma is no longer regarded as a separate entity, but as uh, part of your basic existence. You're making friends with the Dharma. Um, so that whatever I just read he talks about toilet training and ends with you could be fully toilet trained with a smile on your face but um, well, we could talk a little bit about the, the cryptic part of uh the absorption concentration, so you understand a little bit of that context. So going back to page uh, 14, sorry, in, uh, that which has Kongchul's root verse. It says the progressive classification. So here's a way of classifying shamatha, not as a uh, necessarily as different types of shamatha the way that Trump Rinpoche did in uh, meditation and action as one as two different types of meditation one focused on achieving something higher and so forth but here as a progression that there's this traditional Buddhist uh, scheme that has a progression of practice that begins with shamatha practice which is what's called the mind of the desire realm and proceeds to the uh, what's called here the, um, the levels of the concentrations, which are the four concentration, absorption, and states, and then to the formless absorptions, and then uh, to the absorption of cessation medita meditation. He says these are explained in the previous and following chapters to this chapter, which we don't have here. But uh, I circulated a couple of things about this, and I wanted to look in particular at the little chart just to show that, uh, or to look at the uh, different aspects. I can find that. Let's see. Anybody remember when I circulated that? From Derek? It was on Sunday the 31st. Sunday. Oh, here it is. Yeah, great. Thank you. Material on the jhanas. jhanas. 
time. Oh, sorry, before I do that, <clears throat> just uh, <clears throat> another, <clears throat> excuse me, another aspect of this is that <clears throat> this relates to the Buddhist uh, cosmology of the world, where the the Buddhist cosmology is that there's three layers to the world. There's the realm of desire, there's the form realm, and the formless realm. And these intersect with the six realms. And I apologize, I didn't uh, provide a little chart that shows this scheme. I'm sure most of you have seen this before, where um, the god realms of the six realms, you know, the six realms are the hell realm, starting from the so-called bottom to the top. The hell realm, the hungry ghost realm, the animal realm, the human realm, what are called the uh, jealous god realm, the asuras, and then the god realm. And the god realm expand, extends, rather, from the uh, world of desire, which is where we live, that this world is characterized primarily by desire, and it extends, so there's God realms in the desire world of desire, as well as in the formless world, and the, uh, sorry, the form world and the formless world. Now this world has form too, uh, but it's not called the form world. And the difference between this and the form world is that the form world is pure sort of um, essence of form. And uh, so we don't see beings who live in the form realm. They are sort of lofty beings in terms of gods who have achieved certain levels of consciousness through practicing the absorption states. And the idea being that when you practice the absorption states for a very long period of time, and when you die, you can be reborn in these form realms, depending upon which level of concentration you've accomplished. Similarly, for the formless <coughs> realm and the formless concentrations. So samsara is usually shown as a uh, sort of pyramid where the vast majority of sentient beings live in the lower realms the hell realms, the hungry ghosts, and the animal realms. And then the pyramid comes in and you have way fewer humans, way fewer jealous gods, and way fewer gods. And then the god realm is like the, the uh, like a spike at the top of a building that extends way up, goes up into these uh, form and formless realms. I'll, I'll circulate something later, but... Um, the more relevant part is can 
you see this handout? Can you see this on the shared screen? Good. Yeah. Okay, the four jhanas and their factors. Inside meditation, South Bay. <laughs> uh, I don't know, I just found this searching on the internet. And um, the term jhanas is a Pali term. Pali being a language that's related to Sanskrit, but different from it. Sanskrit term would be dhyana, D-H-Y-A-N-A, for the same thing. So this gives uh, detail on the four, uh, first four concentration states, <clears throat> the first four absorptions, and then just gives you the list of the formless. Formless absorptions are immaterial meaning without material, without form. Form and material being synonymous in this case. So the base of infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothingness, and neither perception nor non-perception. And so the traditional scheme of Buddhist meditation practice was that, um, as presented in many places by the Buddha, and... Uh, repeated and, and propagated by uh, many teachers and schools and texts uh, in the, in the so-called early period of the spreading of Buddhism, is that one would first accomplish these absorption states, the four form of absorptions, and then the four formless absorptions. And then when one got to number four here, which when added to the other four makes number eight, one had the, the possibility of experiencing what's called here in Jonga Kongchul's text, the absorption of cessation, which is a little taste of like nirvana. But one is not necessarily enlightened, interestingly enough, because this absorption state is, um, is not necessarily achieved through insight, insight into the three marks of existence, which in the Theravada system is the nature of the way things are, whereas in the Mahayana system of which we are within, the nature of reality is described as the two egos, egolessnesses of self and, and phenomena and shunyata, emptiness. <clears throat> What precedes this, and also I, I should have found a, a chart that shows this, is all the stages of shamatha precede this. So traditionally, in order to go from, I have to write myself a note about this. Embarrassing that I did such a poor job of preparing this topic. Embarrassment is a positive virtue, by the way. I'm trying to feel good about it. Anyway, um, the idea is that one would accomplish shamatha by going through the nine stages of shamatha, which we'll come through, come to briefly soon. And uh, having perfected shamatha, which is sort of like stage 10. After stage 9, one experiences perfect shamatha. And in some schemes, 
imperfect shamanism stage nine and other schemes it's sort of like a separate level like a, a tenth level one would then do a series of contemplations that would then propel one into experiencing the, the jhana states initially the first jhana state and the whole system for how one uh, enters into absorption and meditation is fascinating topic and uh, would take us in a quite a different direction but it's quite interesting in, in, in the way that it's described where um, one experiences this uh, one experiences uh, a stage of concentration called access concentration and access concentration is close to absorption concentration but not quite absorption concentration not quite as strong it's the, the middle middle between shamatha and absorption and so sometimes you'll see this description of of uh, <coughs> concentration or meditation practice comprising three types of concentration momentary concentration which is the type of concentration all beings experience on a momentary basis like for a split second for most of us we concentrate on the object of our mind of our consciousness but access concentration is a, a repeated experience of the same object of concentration in a very focused way and that leads gradually if one is skillful about it into full absorption concentration and the first absorption state one um, overcomes what are called the, f the five hindrances which uh, are listed here sloth and tor torpor so these are different than the uh, um, obstacles to shamatha these are the <coughs> the uh, clashes basically we would call them Sloth and torpor, 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 doubt, aggression, restlessness, and greed or desire. Restlessness is usually, I can't remember, but uh, the, we would overcome the five hindrances and we would experience the five, these five jnana factors of applied thought and sustained thought. So, uh, these are very different from discursive thought so there's like these three levels of thought discursive thought is a momentary flits around jumps from one thing to another every moment and we're all very familiar with that applied thought is thought that is focused on a on the same object for <clears throat> many thought moments in a row but it doesn't completely it doesn't have the capacity to completely remain firm on that object it just approaches the same object every mental moment for a number of uh, a, a sequence of many mind moments it's like we apply our mind or we apply thought to the object over and over and over again sustained thought on the other hand is thought that's able to remain on the object 
sometimes they describe this as applied thought is thought that goes uh, towards the face of an object and sustained thought is thought that wraps itself around the object sort of holds the object which is obviously a metaphorical description rapture is uh, a form of bliss or joy and there's two types of rapture there's physical rapture and there's mental rapture um, sorry so here they're calling uh, I think the physical rapture uh, physical bliss is called rapture and mental bliss is called here happiness and then one pointedness of mind very focused uh, attention see rapture and happiness born of seclusion having withdrawn one's mind from all outer phenomena and the second stage in order to achieve the second stage what we do is we let go of applied and sustained thought so we overcome we've abandoned applied and sustained thought and we do that by realizing that applied and sustained thought are not as nice as all these other factors they produce um, agitation in the mind and they decrease the experience of rapture happiness and one-pointedness so first it involves noticing that they're more coarse than these other features and then it involves letting go and overcoming the applied and sustained thought and focusing purely on rapture happiness and one-pointedness get to the third shnana we overcome rapture we we acknowledge become aware of and acknowledge that physical bliss is more coarse than mental or psychological bliss consciousness bliss again and it produces agitation in our our being and we're talking obviously here of very subtle levels of agitation and that the subtle happiness of the mind and the one-pointedness of the mind are much more pleasurable than rapture and then the fourth is achieved by overcoming the mental happiness and, and experiencing purely the one-pointedness of mind and through that experiencing complete equanimity whereas equanimity was one of the powers of shamatha and experienced quite strongly in shamatha it's one of the it's the sixth power and the um, eighth antidote in shamatha this level of equanimity is uh, exceedingly more profound and deep so uh, one of the key takeaways is uh, that the progression from shamatha into the first jhana and between the different jhana states is accomplished by a type of insight meditation and that insight meditation is called mundane insight meditation where you're noticing the coarseness of certain factors of our experience and the more subtlety of other factors of our experience and then uh, one very precisely uproots or abandons the course factors of experience and focuses on the more subtle ones in this progressive fashion 
So it has that level of insight into one's experience. But it's insight into those factors, and it's not insight into the nature of reality, of what is, in the form of either the three marks of existence or the two egolessnesses. So therefore, it's called mundane vipassana. And this whole scheme is called mundane type of meditation in that it, it, uh, through it one travels to the top of samsara. Top meaning sort of the most blissful, the best place you can achieve in samsara, the, the very top of the formless realm. But it doesn't result in um, leaving samsara. It doesn't result in achieving nirvana and experiencing uh, release, complete release from samsara. Derek? Yes, ma'am. So is this scheme more of a Theravadan practice than Tibetan? Yes, as I said at the, at the outset, it, uh, it's very prevalent in the so-called early period of Buddhism, like the first uh, thousand years after the life of the Buddha. And um, it, in both Theravadan traditions and in early Mahayana traditions, it's referenced as a sort of uh, preparatory type of meditation practice um, that's, that's said to be necessary in order to then progress towards a type of insight practice which leads to nirvana or enlightenment. Later Mahayana, then, uh, I'm sorry, so then um, um, some of the Hindiana, some of the, sorry, Theravadan schools then retain this tradition of uh, focused on absorption meditation. And the way that they use it to achieve enlightenment is that um, in addition to it requiring a type of insight that is called mundane, and that it's purely looking at how to get from one uh, level of shnana to the other. What they do is they use the very strong, focused, concentrated mind achieved through absorption meditation to then focus on the three factors of existence. And so the traditional Theravada system entails using shnana practice absorption practice as a way of experiencing insight practice. And in their system, um, <clears throat> when uh, the, the achievement of the fourth form concentration, the fourth level of jnana or dhyana meditation of the highest level of the form realm is a requirement for experiencing an insight that can lead to release, enlightenment. One doesn't have to, ex to uh, extend one's facility all the way up to the four formless meditations, although that's practiced as a way of increasing dexterity and concentration, concentrated absorption meditation. Um, the focus is really on the fourth jhana. And so that is like the, the standard the gold standard in, in the Buddhist tradition for many hundreds, hundreds of years is that meditators have to achieve the fourth jhana in order to uh, achieve enlightenment. And, uh, one can also, you know, get stuck in the jhanas, as I said earlier, and just end up 
practicing those very blissful states endlessly and they are ex exceedingly blissful and they grant the super sensible cognitions and that uh, one achieves um, all sorts of cool powers through achieving these jhana states where one can see the other people's thoughts one can um, see the births the, the prior existences of oneself and other beings and one can go through forms like uh, one can go through walls supposedly and travel great distances in an instant and so on and so forth all those special powers see things uh, you know in other universes and so forth um, but uh, gradually through the later tradition the bar meaning at what level of concentrative type of meditation shamatha slash absorption meditation one needs to accomplish in order to have a genuine or strong enough experience of insight meditation in order to achieve enlightenment is a big question initially i said it was that fourth uh, jhana state and that by the way is what the buddha used to achieve his enlightenment and what the buddha went uh um, went from inexperiencing pari nirvana. If you read the uh, the death of the Buddha, the passing away of the Buddha, or the pari nirvana sutra, the early pari nirvana sutra of the Buddha, it says he goes into the jhana states and he goes up to the top of the formless ones, and then he comes back down to the fourth jhana, and then from there he goes into nirvana. Um, but it it gradually comes down the bar comes down in, in as the tra tradition progresses and then many many presentations are well you need to achieve the first shiana state in order to have a strong enough focused mind to make insight meditation uh, able to produce enlightenment and then some would say, well, you just need access concentration, that, that sort of in-between level of concentration. That's sufficient. And then there was this extremely radical teacher who came along in uh, <clears throat> the late 20th century called Lady. He wasn't a lady, by the way, but in English it's Lady, pronounced that way. I just realized that it's L-E-D-I. I think it's Lady lady uh, Sayadaw and uh, he's not that well known in the West but his main disciple was Mahasi Sayadaw who became very well known and another teacher in that tradition is uh, Goenka and uh, Iswar uh, who was here earlier has practiced in that tradition but they were famous for saying you don't even need access concentration. All you need is concentration. And everybody experiences momentary concentration, where on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, all sentient beings have this ability to experience an object for a split second in a very vivid way. And that alone gives you the, the strength to experience insight and so their practice becomes insight meditation right from the beginning which is why their meditation practice is called insight meditation even though when you 
learn their practice and find out what they actually do. They, they practice Chalmachan, basically. And their practice of Vipassana is, is uh, basically as unstructured as ours is. <laughs> and uh, sort of uh, vague and nebulous as ours is. But uh, Mahasi Saito became very popular and uh, particularly in the West because the uh, trio of Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, and Sharon Salzberg uh, went over and studied with them, with him, and met him. And uh, he is one of the main teach, main sort of progenitors or forefathers of the Insight Meditation Centers throughout the United States, the uh, Barry Insight Meditation and so forth all the Vipassana centers. And um, what's not so well known in the West is that uh, uh, other other parts of the Theravada world had a fit over him because he was heretical, because he said all you need is, is momentary concentration and you don't need real access or even, or at, at least, or first jhana. Uh, concentration in order to uh, progress on the path, and so there was, there's this whole uh, controversy. Sri Lanka, they like, like went wild. All the elders in Sri Lanka, they wrote all these rebuttals and complaints about him. Somebody wanted to, to invite him to come visit there, and they like threw a fit. And uh, also, he 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 recommends focusing on the movement of the abdomen as you meditate. This was another one, another really uh, interesting situation where, you know, you think Buddhists are maybe open-minded people. <laughs> you know, particularly enlightened ones, you know, we see terrible graphic uh, examples of how wrong that is, you know, in uh, Burma these days. It's like horrific, in inexplicable. But um, this was not quite like that. But they, they claimed that the fact that he... Uh, taught concentration on the abdomen was, was like a Hindu yogic esoteric like tantric meditation practice and was you know anathema because you had to focus on the breath at, at the nose area in their tradition and the Buddha taught that and that's all you could do <laughs> so, anyway Trungpa Rinpoche felt that uh, Mahasi Saido was an amazing teacher and was a true arhat and held him in high esteem. Um, he, he, he talks about him in the Profound Treasury in his seminary talks, which are now in that, in that book. Uh, he talks about Mahasi Saida. And um, so most of what we experience in the West is, is insight meditation, which has the shamatha similar to what we do and a, and a focus then on um, understanding the three marks of existence as being Vipassana practice. And um, there's only a few little uh, groups that still practice jhana uh, uh, meditation. In the West, there's these groups called the Forest Meditation Center or whatever they're called. And uh, they're, they're really into cultivating jhana practice. But there's also, there's a teacher named Pao Ok Sayadaw. I'm probably massacring the pronunciation, but it's P A W. Sometimes it's P A U. And then A U K 
and then Saida is a term like ricochet, basically. And uh, they, he, he teaches uh, jhana or absorption meditation. And now there's a number of <clears throat> very good books on absorption meditation in English. And a number of people who claim to have achieved all the absorption states, which is really a, an outrageous claim that uh, many, many others uh, don't believe is true. They, they feel like if you can, if you can do the absorptions genuinely, then you have these six supernormal powers. Show me your special, you know, your Superman powers. You know, jump over that building and go faster than a speeding bullet. Okay, and then I'll believe you have Jonah. But <clears throat> so then they come up with this scheme that there's well, well, there's two types of Jonah practice and they differentiate them uh, but anyway there's there's people who still promote that and claim to have experienced it so you can read these books such as the 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 version that i circulate and these people are describing uh they claim from their own experience of what these jhana states are like and how one experiences them this is really fascinating but they emphasize that it's mainly a retreat uh, practice. Oh, oh! In order, yes. In order to achieve these, you have to be on retreat for a long period of time, and if, and and these prerequisites of like no activities, no desires, no you know this and no that. They take that you know literally to the extreme. You know, so my wife Jane was uh, the retreat director at Garrison Institute, and there was a one of these forests, whatever groups that would come and do a retreat once a year, those people, and they were like really focused and really, you know, pure silence, no, you know, no functional talking and notes and that sort of thing like we do. And, uh, and they, they're like, they would take like a room off to the side, had to be really quiet around them, no, uh, you know, no noise, and, and uh, they were really into it. And, and it, created a very powerful uh, energy that group according to Jane. anyway so it's uh, <clears throat> I think helpful to know about that whole scheme and, and uh, the other another last thing about that scheme is it's not unique to the Buddhist tradition these are a, a set of practices that were developed before the Buddha and these are the absorption or concentrative practices that he studied and practiced and excelled and accomplished. And uh, they were taught by these so-called six uh, teachers uh, who were uh, prevalent at the time of the Buddha's seeking for enlightenment. And he studied with each of these six and one after another, they said, well, you've accomplished everything I can show you. I have nothing more to show you. You need to go to the next one. And he finally at the sixth one, he was like, I don't know where to send you. And uh, so he did those concentration practices, and he also did ascetic practices as well, but he found that they didn't lead to release, but he still incorporated them as as uh, part of their scheme. And somehow in his day and age, people were able to uh, achieve these absorption states somehow much more easily than today. I don't know, something about iPhones and email and internet maybe has something to do with it or maybe the preservatives and the food we eat or the political I don't know we could go on but 
Um, but they're called the common system, and they're, they're sort of like a dissing that goes on because, you know, they're, they're not the unique teaching of the Buddha, which was insight meditation. And uh, so they don't on their own lead to enlightenment. And there was this whole controversy of like, could one be just an uh, insight meditation person and not accomplish those jhana states? Even in the earliest tradition, and the Buddha presents that there's these two paths and these two options. And they called the, those that were insight only uh, whereas the, the optimal was you, you went through the jhana states and then you practiced insight. And there's a, a very structured way of practicing insight meditation in, the, in that tradition of Theravada. But um, uh, there was also this idea that one could could just practice insight from the start and one would be a, what's called a dry insight worker where you don't have the moisture that comes from absorption, concentration, achievement. I'm sorry, Mary Beth. Um, something about this scheme, it seems familiar to me, and I, I hope you can help me sort it out what I'm seeing or if I'm right. But it, it seems like the absorption, at least that first one where you, or the first and second one where you get rid of the clashes and it's like a course, you get rid of something coarse. It sort of reminds me of that scheme where I guess you lose the coarse and the subtle emotional afflicted states. And, and then you have to gain the coarse and the subtle, I'm going to say insight, but that's probably not the right word, but like wisdom, I guess, you lose coarse and subtle emotion and you gain coarse and subtle wisdom. Is that, I mean, how does that fit with this or does it or where? Yeah, well, so this is another nuance of, of this whole system and how it's incorporated or uh, retained more or less in the Buddhist system. And, and we went through this in uh, one of the last courses I think in the in the very last course, the book by Longchenpa, where, um, as I said, in the later Buddhist systems, the bar of what level of absorption state you need to to have achieved in order to experience genuine uh, insight that can lead to enlightenment. Um, um, even though the bar gets lowered, what happens is that one then still needs to, after achieving enlightenment, see, enlightenment is, the, is not the end of the path in the traditional system. We have the scheme of the five paths, and enlightenment is really the third path of seeing. And then after the path of seeing, you have the path of familiarity, where you're a uh, process of becoming familiar with egolessness and emptiness. And... So before the path of seeing, you're, you're overcoming the coarse level of those hindrances, those emotions, in order to achieve the absorption states, if you're going to achieve the absorption states. And then <clears throat> one can only uproot those clashes by um, having achieved insight into egolessness or emptiness. That happens after the path of seeing. And... Um, so there's this whole progression of 
letting go of there's the greater of the grade, the middle of the grade, and the lesser of the grade, and then the greater of the middle, and the middle of the middle, and the lesser of the middle, you know, that whole scheme. And the 81 levels of these emotions and how there's this complicated scheme of which emotions um, are re related to which realm, you know, each of the three realms has the, these nine levels of the emotion, you know, it gets that all of those charts that we looked at, but but to try to sum it up in a in a uh, more understandable way is that um, there's there's a, an initial letting go of these hindrances that one needs to do to achieve absorption state, and so in the traditional scheme where you're doing the absorptions, first you suppress the those glaciers by uprooting the course. Uh, aspect of them, but the subtle aspect of those emotions still exists, those hindrances. And uh, having suppressed them, one achieves absorption states and can then transition to insight and achieve insight into the lack of a self of persons in the Theravadan tradition. And then uh, that's called uh, entering the stream in their fourfold scheme. And then one overcomes the, the uh, subtle level of those hindrances through the next stages of the path. So when at one point Long Chenpa in his presentation said that in the in the later Mahayana system you can achieve the path of seeing without experiencing the jhana states and without uh, the, the suppression of the clashes that those uh, involve, but you still need to accomplish the jhanas after the path of seeing, and this was what uh, everybody finds surprising. If I don't know if this rings any bell from, bells from the people, those of you that did that last yeah, course. Yeah, I remember that. But, <laughs> at least one person. I think I think Mary Beth is remembering it too from having asked this. But uh, it's this odd thing where it's like after the path of. Uh, of, of seeing, I got to go and do the absorptions, and and so it's the only it's the only way to overcome the clashes of related to the form and formless realms. Anyway, <laughs> we'll you. talk about that more when we get there. Okay. How's that? <laughs> Anyway, we're a little bit over our time, so let's uh, close unless there's any last important comments, questions, no? Okay, thank you very much. And uh, by this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings, by the confidence of the golden sun of the Grades, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Thank you. Thank See you, you soon. So let's see, Emily, are you taking back? I've got it back. Great. Thank you very much for hosting. Of course. Nice to see you all. You too. Thank you. You too. Bye. Good night. Thank, Thank you. you. Nice to see you, Lindsay.